We're going to do our uh, scripture reading from Luke 2, 1 through 20 today. And so we're going to hear Luke's telling of the birth of Jesus. And I'm going to read from a slightly different translation than I normally do. It's the Christian Standard Bible. I've been enjoying this recently. And sometimes we've heard these things so many times year after year that a slightly different translation is helpful. So I'm going to use that for the whole message this morning. And then I will need a volunteer after that to write particularly someone youthy with good handwriting, so think if, that, if you want to be that person. But let's hear the Scriptures first. It's the birth of Jesus. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered. This first registration took place while Quirinius was governor, governing Syria. So everyone went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly host with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. After seeing them, they reported the message or they reported the message they were told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. As we... Uh, as we consider this text this morning, I'm actually going to have, I have two questions that I'd like to hear from you uh, as we start, and we're going to write the answers on the board, so that's where I need somebody. But I want to say this, that there are a few people online, I know um, there's a, a delay, so they're hearing this later, so we're in the future. Um, and so you know, Sherry posted those questions already, so put your answers in. If we can get them, we'll get them up here too, because that'd be fun to hear what's going on out in the world beyond here. So uh, do I have a volunteer to write? Wow, this is like last night. Does anybody want to be Mary instead? I mean, <laughs> all right, Clara, you're going to come up here. I've got two colors. This is great. Okay, I'm going to pull this board over too. We're going to go to that side of the stage. Uh, big enough so they can see, I think. Okay, so how about right there? You already have an answer? Let's hear the, okay, so the first, I got to tell you the question, because you don't know it, they only know it online. The first question, we're just going to just draw a line right down the middle, so we have, okay, we just heard Luke 1, or 2, 1 through 20, so we want to know, you don't need to write this, but what's clear 
in the story? What, what do you hear and you say, man, that is just, that's the coolest thing, or that's clear to me in the story. I get that. What do you get in the story? Anybody? You can just yell it out. Emma, what are you going to say? Fulfilled prophecy. Yes. A baby was born. That's a detail that we ought to notice. Right. Oh, that's great. So people believed and didn't question that it was true. That's a really good point. Yeah. So. Okay. The shepherds came and found it just as they were told. That's a really good one too. I like that. So you're basically preaching the sermon for me. I just, these aren't my details. You guys are coming up with it. Oh, that's for the other column. Okay. She's, she's ahead of us. Hang on to that. Okay. Yes, she, oh man, <laughs> something's gone wrong here this morning. Uh, any other thoughts? What's clear in the story? Good news. We'll take it. There was a census. The first while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Yeah, it actually happened, right? There's, there's, and this is one of the cool things about Luke. He packs so much detail in there. We can actually look at it we know that this is the first census, and then we know that there's actually a later census, and other Christian, early Christian authors point out there was a first census that was the one that Corinius is talking about. So we, we can historically look at these things. Anyways, any other things? There were angels. There were angels. Okay, great. Okay, on the other, if you come up with more, we can put them on there, but come up, well, let's do it on the other column here. This is, I put it this way, what could you be inspired to investigate further? That is, what do you wonder about that's just not as clear in the story? Just, just this. Now, don't bring in the wise men or anything. Just what we read this morning. What could you be inspired to investigate further? What's unclear? Yes, okay, let's hear what Barbara says, because I, I love it. Who did the shepherds tell? Okay. Okay, who did the shepherds tell? And was there a huge crowd that came? Yes, Paul. Oh, why did Jesus come at that particular time in history, you're saying? Okay. Why that time? I look, Clara's doing a great job here. Why was that town chosen? Good question. Right. Yeah. Somewhere between uh, 6 and 4 BC is what's accepted. Because, yeah. Can you also put why was Joseph and Mary chosen? Sure. To be the parents of Christ? Sure. That's a good one. And I'm not going to answer all these, by the way. <laughs> I'm just cur- I'm curious. I, it's, it's interesting to investigate this. And, and part of this is uh, I, some of these I might talk about, but this should spark our own curiosity to investigate this too, right? So you might be sparking someone else. Yes. Ooh, good one. Why was he born in a stable, not a palace, if he was the king of the world? Interesting question. I love it. He peeked at my notes. Okay. That's not a big point, but I do have that in there. Okay, so use the government. Yes, yes, absolutely. 
God's done it more than once. Ah, more of Joseph's perspective. What was that? That's it. What was Joseph's perspective? All right, we'll give a final word to anybody. Anybody, final word? No. Okay, Barb will get the final word. That's okay. Hmm. That's also a good question. So as, as I'm saying here, th- let's give Clara a hand. Good job, Clara. <laughs> Excellent work. Thank you. I'm going to cover this one up to you. So like I said, I'm not going to answer all of these. In fact, I, didn't, I wasn't prepared to stand around and do a question answer. The, the re- reason for, for doing this is, is twofold, actually. I, I, first of all, I love when we read Scripture together and we discover new things together. Right? I'm not going to pick up all these things in the sermon, but we pick them up together. That's remarkable. Um, and then secondly, when we look at this, as I said, I'm not going to answer all of these things. I've got, I've got stuff prepared that may, that's going to touch on some of this. I mean, and actually it might even touch with Joseph's perspective a little bit, or, uh, um, you know, I don't know that we can answer who did the shepherds tell. I'd be interested in that too. We, I don't know that we can answer that question. But, by looking at this, and by some of you looking at it, you may be inspired to look at this as well and think this through in a deeper way. And so we've just done this together. And so I want to pick out, because I've really been thinking through over the last couple of weeks, I was looking at this, the, the story of Christmas. Let me find a good place for those. And particularly this part of it. And I do want to thank, I'm, I'm indebted to actually this book for thinking through it, which Vern and Linda gave me last year for past appreciation. Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth Bailey, who lived in the Middle East for a good 40 years as both a scholar and kind of did some, some work, relief work there too. And uh, he has a, a unique perspective having lived there in the 20th century is when he was living there. Um, and he points out some interesting things. So I'm indebted to him and some other scholars on thinking this through, but maybe a couple of these facts that I'll talk about here at the beginning, um, we'll kind of get to some of what we've got here. And some of them certainly won't answer that. But when we talk about where Jesus was born, it's interesting when we read here in the text that it calls it the town of David. And we know that throughout the Old Testament, the city of David is not Bethlehem. The city of David is in Jerusalem. In fact, if you go there today to Jerusalem, there's a little slope on the side of the hill that they still refer to as the city of David, just kind of under the Temple Mount, sort of. That's, that's the city of David. Bethlehem is south just a, you know, a good half-day donkey ride or less from Jerusalem. And that is being called the town of David here, which actually elevates it in this case. And, and Bethlehem is a podunk town. It's not really known for anything that great. Bethlehem is important because uh, of that David connection. Otherwise, it's not important at all. But that makes it important because David the king, the man after God's own heart. Joseph comes down there, and then this is where I think we start to get into some interesting questions. Joseph is in the line of David. Joseph is, uh, was important then because of that, because being in the line of David meant something. People knew their lineage, and if you can trace it back to King David, for goodness sakes, that's a big deal. 
right? It's like everybody, when they do their genealogy, can trace themselves back to a king of Scotland or something like that. And you're like, yeah, that's a, I can't. But, but I, I run into people all the time who are like, you know, my 18th you know, grandfather was the king of Scotland or whatever it is in whatever year. I hear this every so often. David can point back. King David was a relative. I'm in that family line. That makes him important. He obviously isn't wearing this as a card, but that matters. Joseph is returning to his village of origin in the story. And I, I guess I hadn't paid attention to, to all that, that goes into that. Quirinius is doing a census, and he's actually following orders doing this. And these regional governors could kind of have some liberties on how they went about that and did that. But they're not taxing people, they're taxing property, is my understanding. So Joseph is going back to where he must own some property still. And we know that they were back in that area at one point in time because uh, Mary and Elizabeth uh, visit. And Elizabeth and uh, Elizabeth lived, the, her cousin lived within basically a, donkey, a day's donkey ride from there, as far as we can discern. And that comes into play later as we consider more of the story. So Quirinius is taxing, doing a census for taxation purposes. Joseph likely owned property in Bethlehem, um, which is the taxable thing. We don't know if Mary did or not. Likely not, but we don't know. But here, and our brother Tim Norris got already to this, it's interesting to consider then a truth of the matter. God uses civil authorities to do his will, even when they don't know it and aren't basically agreeing to it. God can do whatever he wants in his world, and God uses people to do that. Often, and all too often, civil authorities have no idea that they're fulfilling the will of God but God uses them still. That's a remarkable truth in the story, isn't it? That here, this simple thing of the taxation and of the taxation of property fulfills the prophecy from Micah 5 of where Jesus is going to be born. Another thing to consider is, as I said, we don't know that Mary owned property in Bethlehem either. It's likely not the case. We do know that she was pregnant when they went down to Bethlehem. As the person going to be taxed, Joseph didn't need to take his whole family with him, but he did. He took Mary with him, and likely that's being a good betrothed, you know, soon-to-be husband, fiancé, um, but it also likely has to do with the fact that Mary's life significantly changed when she found out she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, which I'm sure was a hard sell for most of her friends. So she probably had a limited pool of people to help her back home, and Joseph is doing a loving thing by taking him with her. We don't know all those details, but to take an unwed pregnant uh, mother at that time was an act of care on the part of Joseph. He's caring for Mary. And he's not required to bring the whole family, but he did. And then the other thing, and this is a detail that uh, we throw into our kids' programs all the time, and we'll get to one of the, a couple details about this. The text doesn't tell us Jesus was born the night they arrived in Bethlehem. And I think that's one of those details that we sometimes miss. They arrived, and actually it's the King James translation that probably gets it the closest. But if you look at Luke 2, verse 6, it says, While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. It doesn't say when they arrived. So it would probably use different language if it was, It's imminent that when the donkey got parked, then she was about to have a baby. It doesn't say that. So there was time there. Um, the idea uh, that 
that the baby was being born immediately upon arrival and she was in labor as they're traveling basically from Jerusalem emerges in the third century uh, with a, a text that's kind of a funky little uh, fictional account of the birth of Jesus, which is also, if you read any accounts right now, they just discovered possibly the tomb of the midwife of Jesus named Salome uh, in, in the Middle East. And you look at that and you're like, where's Salome come from? Not from the Bible, it comes from a third century text where we get all this and, and we start to bring in these other ideas that bleed into our understanding of the story. So we get to the text, no idea who the midwife is, doesn't mention it, and Jesus was probably not born immediately upon arrival. But that leads to probably one of the most curious things to me that I considered this year, which is the whole issue of the inn. Have you ever considered this? And this is why you know I'm, I'm bringing this up so you can consider other details that maybe you hadn't thought of. The inn. Guest room is what this translation I used to have. That's what most, a great many translations have. Some have the inn. The inn is not a good translation. And frankly, it's weird to think that people would turn them away in the town of David, somebody in the line of David, who'd been there before and people, and was probably a known entity, even with the circumstances of an unwed uh, fiance who's pregnant. And, and, and I, it's especially confounding to me because I haven't done a lot of world travel, uh, you know, but I've gone to the Middle East and I've, I've gone to places in, in the Middle East, mostly the Holy Land, where you realize how important hospitality is. I mean, it's really important. I went to a lot of different homes over the month. I was in, in the Holy Land back in 2000. And in every single one, they, they went over and above to make sure that you had a drink in your hand very quickly, either tea with an insane amount of sugar and a mint leaf in the bottom or coffee that like you could stand a fork in. It's brilliant stuff. And um, there was only two occasions where I wasn't offered hospitality. One of them, it was a Bedouin family, Bedouin shepherd between Jerusalem and Jericho, and they were so poor they were embarrassed that they couldn't offer us anything to drink. I mean, truly embarrassed. It was mortifying to them. But they still invited us into their home to sit down in their tent. And then the other time was uh, somebody who, boy, how do you say it? They hated our country. And they could have served us, but it was a slight against us to not do so. So those are the only times. It's a big deal. And of course, we didn't catch it because we're Americans. We're like, well, what's a big deal? They didn't serve us tea. Now, reflecting, I'm like, oh, that was a big insult. Wow. Hospitality matters a lot in the Middle East and still today. So I don't know if you've ever been confused by that situation. Why in the world would Joseph be coming to a place like Bethlehem with a pregnant wife, and we know noticeably pregnant wife by this point, and people are turning her away. Doesn't that seem odd to you? And, and I think this is where I'll, I'll refer to Kenneth Bailey here, because I think he puts it in such good words. I got the right page. I hope it did. Nope. Move my bookmark. Page 26, number three. I made a note so I'd remember. Okay. Bailey says this, and I think this is really worth us paying attention to. He says, in every culture... A woman about to give birth is given special attention. Simple rural communities the world over always assist one of their own women in childbirth regardless of the circumstances. Are we to imagine that Bethlehem was an exception? Was there no sense of honor in Bethlehem? Surely the community 
would have sensed its responsibility to help Joseph find adequate shelter for Mary and provide the care she needed. To turn away a descendant of David in the city of David would be an unspeakable shame on the entire village. And this is why it's really important for us to make sure we've thought through the details on these things, because that makes more sense of the text. And, and no guest room instead of no inn, the word that's there is not in as a commercial inn. We have that in, let's say, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's a completely different word to take somebody to a place that their job is to host people and give them a room. This is a guest room of somebody in the town. That's what it is. And what we know of homes generally in that region and in that time is that they were often one room or kind of one room with a slight division in them or two divisions in them. That was quite common. And so what people would do is they would keep their animal on the outside of the house during the day and then so that you don't have the animal stolen and for warmth at night, you bring the animal into your house at night. And there's an area uh, where you keep the animals next to a manger and next to that is the family area where you'd eat and spend time together. And if you had another division in the house, you had what you would use as a guest room. That's how those houses work. Sometimes they were, they were put into a kind of an edge of a rocks or almost cave-like structure. Sometimes they weren't. If you go to the, the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem today, it's like it's a little kind of in the rocks, cavey kind of area underneath this giant church. Um, that could very well be the case. But what we, what we understand about the time is guest room would have been a, section, a separate area within the house, a normal house. And the reason that there's no guest room probably is because there's a census and there's too many people and so they put them in the family room is where they would have put them with the rest of the family, where the animals are for the night, where there's a manger either built into the floor if it's a sloped area or a wooden manger um, if they didn't have that kind of construction. So that's what's being referred to there. And that's why a manger would have been probably the most obvious thing around to lay a baby in And even more so, when Mary went into labor, all the guys would have been kicked out of the middle room, and only the women would have been there, and there's what would have been the manger, because they would have been closest to everything they needed in the family area. That's really the impression that we get as we think further about what it looked like for the night when Jesus was actually born. But what's interesting, as we still consider that further, Jesus' birth wasn't exactly still under ideal circumstances. And so I want to I reflect on a truth that I think comes out of the story and a couple questions that I have uh, for us to personally reflect on. And one of the things to, to recognize about Jesus is it wasn't ideal where he was born. Why was he born in a manger in, in a stable? It was a good question. Instead of a palace? You know, if you look at Jesus' life, he faced adversity his whole life. Trouble came with Jesus' life. As we read, John 1.11 tells us he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That's very much the story of Jesus' life all too often. It starts from his birth. Luke 9.58, Jesus himself says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. One of the truths, though, that I think we can see from all of this, even amidst the adversity that Jesus faced and the un, not ideal circumstances of the birth and everything that comes with that, 
is that we live in the time after Christmas. We know the story now. And Jesus is close now. Jesus is close, and all we need to do is actually receive him. That's why he came. And that's why he came close. And that's why those humble beginnings actually matter so much. And so I have a couple questions about that that I reflected on this week, and I'm going to give to you as reflection questions thinking about that, of Jesus being close and in humble circumstances, facing adversity. And all we need to do is receive him because he's now close. The first question is this. How have you boxed Jesus out of certain areas of your life? He's close. We need to receive him. But how have you boxed him out? You got him in other areas. But he said, not this one. And if you want to put it in different terms, this may be, it's more pointed. What would embarrass you or shame you if Jesus only knew? I think that puts a finer point on it for many of us. We hide a part of our life from Jesus who came close and wants us to come close, and yet there are parts of our lives that we say, no, I couldn't possibly show that to Jesus because that would be too embarrassing or shaming. Well, those are the exact areas we need to reveal to him so that he can redeem. And so the flip side of that is this. How can you invite him in from the guest room to the family room this season? I've got a joke. I didn't think I had much to say this morning. Let's go to the shepherds, because I have a whole second page, apparently. But I don't want to keep you here all morning, because there are gifts to open. I understand that. Um, the, the whole idea of the shepherds, since we read about them this morning, I, I just want to cover this a little bit. In the Old Testament, we run into kings being referred to as shepherds. You know, uh, even Saul... King Saul, the first king of Israel, you will be the shepherd of my people, God tells him. David, uh, Psalm 78 is a a good one where he's referred to as the the shepherd of his people, but there's others. Ezekiel also refers to him that way. King Cyrus even. Oh, here's the God using other civil authorities to do something. He's going to be a shepherd as to God's people. Even in Isaiah, we read that. And even the leaders of Israel, God says, I want you to shepherd my people, prophets and other leaders. You're supposed to be the shepherds of my people. Jeremiah 23 is a great passage on that one. God himself is referred to as shepherd. We talked about this last night with the kids at the Christmas Eve service. Psalm 23, of course, famously, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 80, 1 through 3, it says, listen, shepherd of Israel, who leads Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine on Ephraim. Benjamin and Manasseh, rally your power and come to save us. Restore us, God. Make your face shine on us so that we may be saved. And Israel is referenced as God's flock in many parts of the Old Testament. And of course, as we read the prophecies even of the Messiah that's to come, and by Jesus' own admission later, although we can't put that in the text yet of our understanding here, The expectation is that there's a good shepherd to come. The anointed one that's going to come is going to be a good shepherd. And so they have an expectation that leaders 
God has leaders in mind that are going to be good shepherds to Israel. God has a Messiah that's going to be good shepherd. The kings of the past were referred to as shepherds of God's people, and God himself was referred to as shepherds. How is it that by the time of Jesus, the rabbis would say that shepherds are three of the lowliest positions out of like seven that you could have in the life of Israel? How is it that they're social outcasts? It's a bizarre thing to think about, isn't it? And all throughout the Old Testament, a shepherd's a good thing. And all of a sudden now, when Jesus comes, the one who's going to be the good shepherd, being a shepherd is bad. It's dirty. You stay out and you eat on people's public property and people don't like it. They're poor. They're country people. Not worth your time. It's a bizarre thing to think about, isn't it? How much things change. Yet, the angels appear to the shepherds and proclaim that Jesus, the anointed king, was here. Why would they go? What made them want to go to see Jesus? If the king is here, if the long-awaited Messiah is here, and angels come to talk to the shepherds, what thing could God say that would get them to go? Let's look at verse 12. It says, This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. So he's not in king's clothes. He's in basic everyday people's baby clothes, what they had around, and he's lying in an animal trough. If you're going to communicate to shepherds, that's a pretty good way to say, hey, this guy's for you. Kenneth Bailey, again, commenting on this. He says, the child was born for the likes of the shepherds, the poor, the lowly, the rejected. But he also tells us he also came for the rich and the wise who later appeared with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I think it's really interesting to consider this. When God works and he is around us, we need to keep an eye out for what God thinks is most important. You may be surprised. Perhaps he's even seeking you. As we consider that, that, that Jesus comes close, perhaps he's seeking you. What could God say to convince you to come closer right now? Wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. That's what it took. The shepherd said, he's our guy. What would it take for God to speak into your life and say, Jesus, he's my guy? What would it take for God to speak and come close for you to take the broken parts of your identity that he could repair and hand them over? What would it take for you to take those broken relationships and hand them over to God because only he can redeem them? Because that's what he's doing with the shepherds. He's repairing something that's broken. Finally, and somebody brought this up, Mary treasures these things in her heart. I want to point out that Jesus is close. He's close for us right now. And you see Mary and you see the shepherds, they're forever changed by this baby, Jesus. And if we'll simply receive him too, we'll be changed forever as well. Luke 2.19, it talks about Mary. She says it's Mary was treasuring all these things in her heart and meditating on them as all this happened. 
What new things in the story can you see this year as you reflect on the birth of Jesus and take them in and treasure them in a new way? I'll speak personally and just simply say, um, I'm normally a little bit of a Scrooge during Advent and into Christmas. I don't always know why, but I can be a little bit grumpy about things internally. Um, this year has been completely different. And of course, we, our lives have been different. Um, I have been wanting to buy everything possible for my family for Christmas and enjoying every moment of it. I haven't, but I've enjoyed everything that I've picked up because I've been trying to find these little ways to treasure up what God is doing this year. How can you do the same with the story of Jesus and what he's given us in our lives right now? And secondly, verse 20, it says, The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen and heard, which were just as they had been told. So brothers and sisters, what old or new reasons do you have to praise God today? How have you been changed because you've encountered Jesus? And how can you praise God because of it? As we close out, um, I'll move this first. Uh, the Christ candle is already lit behind us, and what I'd like to do is have us do a responsive reading from Psalm 96 because it, it asks that very issue of praise. And I think the worship team has been well-behaved, so we'll move this so you can see them for the last song too. But can we put Psalm 96 up on the screen, and can we say it all together as our response? I'll read the white words, you read the purple. Can you read the purple? The front row can. That's why you moved forward. Sing to the Lord a new song. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples. There it is. For all the gods of all the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for loving us that much to give your son. And Lord, may your spirit move in our lives to draw us closer to your son, Jesus Christ, so we recognize what it is to be a new creation. Not simply a slightly moved person, but to become new through and through, inside and out, through your Holy Spirit. May that be our reality today, and may we praise you because of it. May we dwell on the things that you've done that we didn't even notice before, but now we can say praise be to God because you've done these marvelous things in our lives. You make signs and wonders that point to the work of your kingdom. May that work be fulfilled in our lives as well. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.